You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Eli. Hi, Bob. How you doing? Uh, good. But, you know, the as, world as is good as can be coming apart yeah. d- during a horrifying war. Let me introduce yeah. us. I'm Robert Wright, host of The Wright Show, which this is. I'm also publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. You are Eli, Eli Lake. Lake. I am a contributing editor at Commentary. Yeah. A fellow at the Clement Center uh, for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin, oh. where I focus on national security journalism. Do you ever go down there? Do you ever go down there to Austin? That's a, uh, that's a mere, you know, hours or two drive from my high school. Uh, I have been to Austin, but I got the gig during COVID, so I haven't gone since. Mm. Check it out. But I look forward to doing well, this. Well, when you're doing the Joe Rogan show, you'll have a chance to check it out. There you go. Um, so, yeah, let me, we're going to talk about uh, the war in Ukraine. Um, last week, I talked about it with uh, somebody pretty much on my ideological wavelength, Katrina Vanden Heuvel. I thought I'd mix things up and talk to somebody who's not exactly on my ideological wavelength. And again, as if to drive that point home, you are now branded as a commentary guy. Congratulations. That's a new gig, right? Yes, it is. Uh, Thank you very much. And uh, how would you characterize the ideology of commentary, Eli? Neoconservative. Thank you. (laughs) So... uh, so uh, we're and, the original and, and, neoconservative, and you have yeah, it's this it's uh, the grandfather of uh, Norman so, Podoritz, yeah, whose whose son is now the, is John Podoritz the editor the editor of Comedy? He, he is the editor, yes. Uh-huh. So, um, and you have a piece in Commentary relevant to what we're going to talk about. We will get around to discussing that, uh, but I wanted to start by just getting your take on the state of play first, like where we are in the war. This is uh, Tuesday, March 15th. This will post tonight. Um, but, you know, things are pretty fluid. What, what's your what's your take on things? Well, um, I can well, narrow the, the question if you'd like. No, but the in the broadest sense, uh, it's pretty clear the initial war aim of Vladimir Putin failed. I think he wanted an almost special operations war that decapitated the government in Kiev. Just like Crimea. Just like Crimea. Um, I think he was trying to kill Zelensky, the president, and or capture him. That failed. Um, And now he is mired in an invasion that I think has weak supply lines, uh, potentially at times broken, and he is resorting to brutalizing tactics that we associate with World War II, or more recently, Russia's campaign in Aleppo in uh, Syria of using uh, unguided, uh, dumb munitions against civilian targets as a kind of means of terror. Many of the same problems that we've seen uh, horrors we've seen in in Syria, such as confusion about humanitarian corridors where people are fleeing and then they get attacked, we're seeing in the context of Ukrainian cities. But Ukraine's government hasn't fall, fallen. The airspace is still contested. And 
it, if anything, the theory of Putin's war that he was liberating Russian speakers has been discredited because Russian speakers in major cities have fought him and he's killing them. So I, I would assume is he a, has turned some formerly sympathetic potentially. people against him. Well, I, I don't even know if they were sympathetic three weeks ago, but he certainly didn't greet them as liberators. And uh, so I think that two things can be true. It's a strategic blunder uh, for Putin, not just because I think he he totally misread, underestimated the Ukrainians. He also misread and underestimated Europe and the United States, the West, in terms of the response and sanctions. But it's also a perilous situation for Ukraine because he's willing to uh, resort to these uh, hor horrible and brutal tactics to terrorize civilians and kill them. Now, do you think he still plans to go into Kiev? I mean, I would think if he's paying attention, he realizes that that probably isn't a good idea. Um, I mean, obviously, he was getting bad advice going in. He, he completely misunderstood how formidable the Ukrainian army was going to be and, uh, and, and how much support the army was going to have from civilians, I think. Um, and, that, and, and I was, from the beginning, I was predicting even, you know, I thought there probably would be an invasion, but I didn't think. I, I, I felt pretty confident. He wasn't going to try to take Kiev. That would be crazy. It's, it seems to me it must be becoming apparent even to him that, that that's going to be a big problem. Uh, and, and, and I'm wondering if he's recalibrating. I mean, one reason I ask is because one reason he might try to drive civilian populations out of a city by terrorizing them is if he does want to go in, right? Uh, the, the, it's it's to his advantage for the remaining forces not to have kind of a civilian uh, population to blend in with. Uh, I I just wonder if if he, you know, because they, they they're kind of taking their time encircling Kiev, right? I mean, they seem in no in no rush to actually well, go that, in. That might also be because the Ukrainians have effectively used these Turkish drones to mm -hmm. blow up columns of Russian artillery and motorized vehicles. Um, there's lots of reasons for it. Also, he's now using conscripts. He's got 6,000 Syrian volunteers. Mm. Um, I think he, there's reports that there were uh, senior Russian officers sent to the front lines for morale reasons, but there were also reports that uh, the army itself didn't know that it was doing this full invasion until they were doing it. Um, you know why I think that is? I, I think that I think that is the strongest evidence yeah. of what a simplistic conception he had of how easy this was going to be. I think they thought most of those troops, maybe not so much in the in the east and, and south, but the, the troops along the northern border, I think they thought they were really just going to be occupiers in the in the most 
in the simplest sense of that mission. Like, okay, we're just going to tell them you go in and stand at this street corner and you wave right. traffic along and hand out candy to school kids. I, I think they really thought that, that they didn't have, uh, they, he, they can't be crazy enough to think you can send soldiers into actual battle and not tell them more than 24 hours in advance, right? I, I just think they thought these guys were just going to be occupiers in a benign sense of the term. That's quite possible, but there are a couple other factors here. One is, um, you know, we, we see these photographs in the Kremlin of Putin meeting with like Macron on this enormous cartoonishly long table. And it's a symbol that he's been isolated. He doesn't have people in his inner circle who are willing to, pardon the cliche, speak truth to power. And I think he, that contributes to a sense of like loss of reality. There are reports, I don't know what to make of them. Uh, there was a British newspaper that said that top FSB officers have been under house arrest for providing supposedly bad advice. Another strange element of this is that you know, U.S. and public intelligence community assessments have kind of been a punchline since 2003. And yet they seem to have gotten most of this Russian invasion correct. And there's an argument, although it's hard to know because the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, is such a liar. But did perhaps Sergei Lavrov and the Russian ambassador to the United Nations were unaware of what this operation was. And so that would mean that the CIA had better intelligence about than the foreign ministry. The Russian war than the foreign ministry. And that's a that's that could be explained also because autocratic regimes often run on secrecy and distrust. And you don't want this information out, which is all the more kind of remarkable that they U.S. intelligence or British intelligence was able to kind of crack this, get this information out before the war. Um, so he's got a lot of problems. And I oh, don't he, know that he's thinking rationally because he's surrounded by people who won't challenge him, it seems. You well, know, I think it's true that he has, he had a narrow circle of advisors. I think he's made a point of being surrounded by highly trusted people. And a small number of them, which means that they're, you know, the people who've been with them a long time. They're not young and, you know, and yeah. and, uh, and so I, I think this is consistent with what I'm saying, that they thought this was going to be easy, which which yeah. which, which suggests uh, a real, that that itself suggests a real, real disconnect with reality. Um, you know, do you have any sense... You know, you're you're among other things, kind of a you know your your journalism has gotten into military tactics and strategy a fair amount in the past. Do you have any any sense of where any guess about where we'll be in a week or two or three? I mean, I do think I, I mean the Ukrainian army has been very impressive. I do think it's easy to overestimate how well things are going because. Uh, the Ukrainians have been better at getting their information out, their pictures out. I think we've sure. seen pictures of almost every Russian tank destroyed. And I don't think we've seen many pictures of the Ukrainian tanks destroyed. And, I mean, you referred well, to— I don't think the, the Ukrainians are fighting a tank-on-tank -tank battle at this point. No, they're I think not. They've got but an I mean, agile strategy of using 
these Javelin anti-tank weapons, which are apparently right. very effective, and these drones from Turkey, which apparently are credible. There was a really good report on NBC about uh, the assessment of how effective these weapons have been. And then there's the stingers that have been able to take out helicopters yeah. or lower flying aircraft. And I think there's now an effort to try. So I think the Ukrainians are largely relying on um, kind of battlefield right. uh, well, artillery type things. I mean, that's not artillery inter- missiles. I'm not a, see, I'm not a ta- military tactician by any stretch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting point that, that it isn't conventional kind of tank on tank stuff. You know, I had originally been thinking of this as like, okay, the Russians will win militarily, right. but then bigger. the insurgency begins. And I'm starting to think there's a blurrier line between the war part and the insurgency part. It, because the tactics being used by the Ukrainians are already a lot like insurgent tactics, right? I mean, they're they're, yes. they're going behind Russian lines and picking off tanks and stuff like that. And they're not they're not uh, bringing out some big array of forces to confront uh, to confront them in an offensive way. Um, so. I don't know. I'm starting to think we may not know when the insurgency begins. But but uh, it's maybe it's begun. But but back to um, the question: Do you have any sense for? I, I was going to say. I mean, it's easy to become overconfident, uh, as I think some people are becoming, uh, because if you look at the map, the fact is, by and large, things are moving in only one direction: the amount of territory. Sure. Uh, occupied by Russians expands. It's they're, they're having well, you know it's going way slower. What does than it hope. mean? Well, right. Well, that I know what you're going to say, and that's kind of my point. Is, yeah. is the has the what does it mean for them to occupy if the insurgency has started? Kind of right. Is, yeah. Does, um, you know, I mean, the, I think there's at least 1.5 million, if not 2 million, refugees at this point. Civilians are being uh, evacuated from cities. Um, they're preparing the cities, I think, to become these hellscapes of urban warfare. And they're preparing for that. The Ukrainians are open about that. There's a lot that they are doing, obviously, that remains not public. So, yeah, they they managed to rubbleize Kharkiv. But does that mean they own it? Right. No, they, they're, um, they're still not occupying it, right? Correct. Uh, you know, they they did this thing in one of these towns, I forget the name of it, where they, they kidnapped the mayor and they tried to put in somebody else and there was a huge uproar. Um, add to this something that we can't know in the fog of war. And that is the morale of the Russians who are kind of caught up in all of this. And as I like to say, the Russian army, for the most part, is both an instrument and a victim of Putin's insane war, which is they're poorly supplied. We know this a little bit from kind of anecdotal evidence, but we see these photos that the the, the vehicles themselves are not well maintained. The tires are not working in the mud. Um, things like that. The details of an operation that their supply lines are are weak. Uh, if not, they're not yet broken, but they're, they're potentially getting to that point. So what is the morale of a Russian soldier who, uh, let me grant this to sort of the realist side that probably believes 
Ukraine is, you know, not just a neighboring country. They don't hate Ukrainians. They think of them as kind of cousins or, you know, they have a fraternal bond. They don't want to kill Ukraine, especially Russian speaking Ukrainians. And here they are in this nasty fight um, with poor supplies. There are reports that their rations are expired. Um, that if you can break the will of a milit- of an army in the battle like that, and I think that's that's sort of the the hope of the Ukrainians. That's a serious thing. And then you start seeing defections, mutinies, uh, what used to be called in the Vietnam War, fragging, and that is a killer uh, for an invading force. That's you don't want to be in that situation at all. I, I think there already has been a certain amount of abandoned intentionally abandoned equipment you know people just sure. preferring to melt into the into the forest or or go loot you know yeah a store rather than stay in a tank um the uh so let me i guess the question of where you think we'll be in two weeks let me, let me re- rephrase it do you uh, th- as we speak there's a little more in the way of active discussion about negotiation if not true negotiation itself the um and as I said, I think if Putin's smart, he um, he doesn't really try to go into Kiev and instead surrounds it, uh, maybe torments it, and finally says, okay, let's talk seriously. Perhaps having uh, secured the most important gains to him in the East, possibly including, you know, surrounding and capturing a lot of the Ukrainian soldiers in the East, which is one of their goals. But in any event, um, do you think we're moving toward a point where there will be enough of a stalemate that that, that there's going to be a, a, some kind of negotiated solution? Hard to say. I mean, Putin's demands haven't really changed. He's asking for almost kind of a full capitulation. It's even if Zelensky calculated, all right, let's 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 stop the violence. I don't know if the Ukrainian people at this point would follow him. Although he has galvanized the nation and he's galvanized, frankly, the world, the Western world. And he's a he's proven himself to be an effective and powerful leader. And sort of the this peril has brought out this greatness in him. But I just, I, I, this is kind of on a deeper point. This is like my problem with uh, the Mearsheimer realist view of this. This is that it's not realistic to think that Ukrainians who had the experience of uh, the famine under Stalin and, you know, the occupation during the Soviet times and all of this recent history would go along with being a buffer state that was basically in the control or orbit of Russia. And we can debate that here in the West and, you know, our air-conditioned conference rooms, but Ukrainians have a say as well. And it's not just that they elected Zelensky and Zelensky has sort of proven that he's going to fight. The Ukrainian people are fighting. They don't want, they don't, they don't want to be dominated by Russia. And That seems to be like missing from a lot of the analysis of this conflict going back to 2014, 2015. I think they don't want to be dominated by Russia. I mean, most of them don't. 
Um, right. The the but uh, as for them having a say, they don't have you know they can't decide that they get to join NATO. NATO is an organization that chooses its members. So so well, NATO I, I, could say I, you're I'm not going to be NATO a member. Aside. What's that? I'm leaving NATO aside. Okay. You're right. Countries can apply and the alliance decides. Right. And it's not up to the Ukrainian people just because they want to join NATO that they get into NATO. That's I'm not disputing that. I'm saying the terms that I think, you know, forget, leaving Putin aside, the terms that realists believe were reasonable for Russia, that Ukraine had to be a neutral state that was demilitarized, that didn't join the European Union and was part of kind of Russian, Russian economy and all this other stuff. Those are terms that Ukrainians won't accept. And maybe they would have accepted them 15 years ago. It's possible. I don't know. But certainly not after 2014. Certainly not after uh, Viktor Yanukovych campaigns on joining the European Union. And as they're beginning that process of accession to the European Union, basically on orders from the Kremlin, reverses course, pulls out, they go into the streets and say, no, you, we voted for you, we voted for the party of regents to join Europe. And now you're telling us we're, we're not doing it because the Russians told you, you know, something. And then you know, he fires on the demonstrators, he flees to Russia, um, and then Russia starts the war that is still going on. They annex Crimea and all these other things. That is going to affect the population of Ukraine. And I think that that, if, even if there was this option, which I doubt because of the history, that maybe they would agree to become this neutral buffer state. Mearsheimer has you know, given this lecture a few times. He wrote a big piece eight years ago in Foreign Affairs. Ukrainians aren't going to go along with it. So I'm saying that the so-called realists were not being realistic about this really important factor, which is would, this, would Ukrainians accept this arrangement that would have maybe averted the war? which I don't think they would. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a, a different view on that and, and uh, people can read it in the non-zero newsletter. I mean, the most recent version is called Inside Putin's Head where, um, you know, I argue that NATO is important, although not just in the sense of national security. And I've also argued elsewhere that, you know, my, uh, that, well, I would say that your, your account of uh, what happened in 2014 you know, is is not, well, it's not the account. It, it's not what things look like from Putin's point of view. That's the main thing, is that he would emphasize the American involvement, you know, Victoria Newland uh, behind the scenes, uh, d you know, trying to anoint uh, the well, next, I, I, you know, I'm glad you brought all that. that. I, I don't want to get into a big argument about this. I, I, it's I'm not just an saying, argument, but I do think it's important because, you know, I, I encounter this a bit on Twitter and I see it, you know, this is this is a a point that has been made by Mearsheimer and others. The the phone call that was leaked by Russia in 2014 was maybe we should if people haven't heard it, it's okay. worth listening to. So Victoria Newland, State Department official, 2014, and the the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine uh, have a phone call that the Russians apparently taped. They've released excerpts and. They're kind of talking about, 
you know, there's this period of ferment. It looks like uh, the current uh, Ukrainian president, who's, who's largely pro-Russian, is going well, to, but to go. campaigned as pro-Europe. That's a key point. Right. But I mean, at, at that point, he has pivoted. Uh, right. You know, as you said, Putin offered a bunch of stuff to Ukraine if they would not uh, move toward the EU. And so he he swung that way. So in that sense, he was at that point pro-Russian. It looks like he, there are protests. It looks like he's not long for this world. And Victoria, I mean, as a as the leader, and and uh, although it came closer than he'd like to be not long for this world, period. But um, the uh, and Victoria Newell, they're having this conversation about so okay, who should the the next guy be? And they decide who should be the prime minister after. Uh, the president, who should be in effect at that point, kind of leading the government. They don't decide, though. This well, is, but th this they is... choose this guy named Yats, and they talk about how they're going to implement it, how they're going to get him the, to become the guy. That, not, Eli, is... listen to the conversation. It's, I have it's, listened to I the found it astounding. I found it astounding, honestly. I, I have listened to the conversation. And whenever there's kind of a political turmoil or something like that, there's always going to be conversations between American diplomats or French diplomats on what they'd like to see in their assessment of things and in many ways how they can use normal sorts of leverage. But eventually, if you remember, the parliament, which had been voted on before this whole crisis after Yanukovych leaves, votes unanimously, I think, or close to unanimously to impeach him. And in addition to that, you know, she's speaking loosely on this phone call, but it's, but I think that this is a matter of Russia mirror imaging. The United States doesn't, you know, have this kind of complete control. It has a series of incentives that it can do. It can make international financing and debt relief and reconstruction aid and all these kinds of things contingent on certain kinds of political outcomes. But that is not the way that Russia operates. The way that Russia operates is what they did in 2005. They didn't like one of the candidates following what was at the time called the Orange Revolution, so they poisoned him with sure, dioxin. Sure, sure, sure. No, look, I'm not making that disfigured. kind of comparison. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not. Okay. I'm not saying we're like the Russians in all of these respects. Right, I'm but just I think saying, the Russians viewed it as as the U.S. control of Kiev because that's what they do. That's what they want. What they well, were doing well, no, was they were gaming I, I think out it scenarios. Was, it was which, meddling. Remember, this is a this wound up being a non-democratic transition of power. You can call it a revolution. You can call it a coup. It was well, not an election. After he, after he fires on the troops, well, there's a there's, political there's crisis. There's dispute over who fired first. I don't know. I, I haven't, no. I haven't, you okay. know, I haven't watched the Oliver Stone documentary yet. But so I have no view on that. But, uh, but, but there are credible people. I, I think there's a genuine dispute over who fired first. In any event, the point is there's enough ambiguity wow. in all of this. And and they don't just say, well, wouldn't it be nice if Yats were the next prime minister? They, they they talk about it, decide he's the guy, and then they say, okay, how are we going to make this happen? We need to bring in an international official. Let's get Biden. You know, blah blah blah. I mean, they, my point is just that it's a non-democratic transition of power where they seem to be choosing the guy. And if you're Putin, I mean, if if like this is us, and it's during the Cold War, and this is happening in Mexico, you know. We are not going to respond favorably, you know. And the Russians are doing the phone call. All, all I'm, I, you know, I don't want to get into, uh, you know, well, you, you and I have very different ideas about the extent to which American foreign policy, had it been different, could have prevented this whole thing. I think it could have. Has to do with NATO expansion. 
how we handled 2014, and a number of other things. But we, we don't need to rehash that. I mainly just wanted to say your account of 2014 is not the, on, not the only account out there. Well, I know there is a Russian account of 2014. Well, no, don't make it sound like you'd have to be a crazy, a crazy dictator nut. The well, phone call I, ju- I just described did happen. Okay, know? but whatever you want to say, there have been subsequent Ukrainian elections. There was right. a parliamentary vote about Yanukovych after he had fled the country. It wasn't just, it, this wasn't uh, Mossadegh in Iran. This wasn't United Fruit Company. This is, and, and I, so true. During the Cold War, when we used the idea of the Monroe Doctrine uh, to justify foreign policies that supported dictatorships in South America, as well as insurgency movements, it was during a global Cold War where the Soviet Union was also backing aside. And since the end of the Cold War, the United States has largely supported what I would say are democratic transitions in its hemisphere. Now, okay, this was not a democratic transition. Well, I'm, I'm, we're talking about you. I'm saying the democratic transition. <laughs> but my point now, is, he he, you, he caught us. He caught us involved in what was not a. And look, I I want to be clear. Nothing justifies the invasion of Ukraine. I, think I know. I know. You and I may that. have different yeah. views on why it's particularly egregious, but I think we both consider it egregious and and not justifiable. Um, you know, at the same time, if if you think there are ways, as I do, in which our foreign policy has been consistently unwise in ways that made it more likely that egregious things that involve tremendous human suffering and destabilization and the possibility of nuclear war would happen, you want to you, you, you want to revisit those, you know, if, if you're me and you have that belief. This well, is not about whose so fault the invasion to, is. That's why I'm so happy to be doing this uh, yeah. blocking hands with you. Because I, first of all, I, want, I think one of the things that I want to puncture here is that Russia is owed a sphere of influence the way America has a sort of sphere of influence. and. That, I don't think, is a comparable analogy. As I said, during the Cold War, it's true. The CIA supported the Contras, and the Soviets and the Cubans supported the Sandinistas. And there were proxy wars all over the world, including in Latin America. And the United States had a view that we would not accept the expansion of communism in our hemisphere. There was the failed Bay of Pigs. We all know this history. After the Cold War, the U.S supported a democratic transition even with their own clients, like Augusto Pinochet in Chile. Um, What did the Russians do after the Cold War? Well, they were on their backs and they were weak for a while. But in the last, since you could say 2008, they have sought to assert their sphere of sort of influence, their near, what they call their near abroad, in what used to be parts of the Soviet Union. And in the case of Vladimir Putin, even though sometimes it's said he wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union, we can tell from his lunatic speech on the eve of the invasion that he's thinking about the Romanovs in the 19th century. And he's got a deeper view of Russian history uh, 
So it is literally Russian imperialism, which is, as a side, I find it strange that there are self-proclaimed kind of international socialists who seem to have forgotten that the original Bolsheviks hated that kind of Russian imperialism. Um, but that's, that's for later. But my point is that the people of Ukraine, you know, you, we can't, I, I don't think it's good for the world that Putin gets to determine uh, or dominate his neighbors. And that's not, by the way, what the United States does. We don't have a relationship like that with Mexico or Canada. And well, we're imposing sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela because they're not sufficiently compliant. Correct. Well, no, no that's not the. I mean, the I know that's not the official rationale, than, but you can't argue that it's because they're authoritarians when we have plenty of much more brutally authoritarian allies. That can't be the actual thing going on here. No. Uh, in in Venezuela, there was a policy to support or to recognize Juan Guaido, but that, in my view, is consistent with the Venezuelan constitution because the 2018 election was neither free nor fair, and it was it was it failed every possible test. And I mean, right. we don't so get you, into the you, history you of Venezuela. The rationale, but, I don't. I don't think it makes sense. There are actual motivations. Well, I mean, the OAS supported this. It wasn't just the U.S. deciding. Right. It was almost the entire. Okay. And okay. Uh, I mean, my main point policy. was just you, you made it sound as if once the Cold War was over, you know, we 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 quit caring about a sphere of influence. But no, we, we still consider our sphere of influence immense and don't want Russia to have any sphere whatsoever, literally. And I'm not defending it, it's not a good thing if any neighbors are dominated by Russia. I don't think it's a good thing if any neighbors are dominated by anybody. Um but at at the same time. Uh, in a world full of nuclear weapons, you'd be crazy not to at least try to understand what kind of strategic calculations govern a nuclear power's decision-making um, and, and, and try not to kind of needlessly increase the chances of war. But we, okay, we don't- Okay, so, so wait a second. I, yeah. I agree with you. It is important to understand the motivations. And this is another area where I think we are making a mistake to think that this is somehow in Russia's- national interest. Uh, it isn't. I think that this war is in Putin's interest. And it's in Putin's interest for a few reasons. One, uh, autocrats need war and external enemies to justify their rule. Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly straightforward proposition, but I think it's kind of proven out by history. Um, and second, if, if Putin was interested in Russia's national interest, then he would have listened to Joe Biden's clear threats that he would ruin his country's economy. I mean, that's if, if he was if he was acting as a as a nationalist, he he would have been deterred. But he's not acting as a, a nationalist. He's thinking about his preservation of personal power. I agree that it's not some kind of straight national security calculation. I think that's part of it. But again, this this piece I wrote, which uh, the first half is is not paywalled, and I'm about to take the whole thing out of a paywall, I think, but called Inside Putin's Head at the Non-Zero Newsletter, it gets into this about how I think even NATO, the, that issue got 
it got into Putin's head in a way that wasn't about national security. It was about respect. It was about respect for him. It was about respect for Russia. And certainly the calculations you describe, him wanting to shore up domestic support, are important. And this, as I say in that piece, is I think a deficiency of the strict realist perspective. The idea that what motivates all foreign policies is yeah. calculation about national interest. So I don't deny any of that, but but it's just that I think a lot of those factors, we should have been able to foresee those too, right? I mean, should have been able to take those into account. Anyway. Um, well, I, I, would, I would go one further. I don't think that Putin wants the example of countries on his border, especially a country like Ukraine, which has so much of a shared history with Russia, having less corruption, regular elections, prosperity and trade with Europe, when those things are not on offer for his own citizens. That is an existential threat to his rule and his autocratic system. I, um, I think that may be part of it, but I would emphasize that I, I, I think he's genuinely convinced himself like, for example, 2014, you would call that a democratic revolution that he finds threatening because it's democratic. I don't think he sees it as democratic at all. I think he genuinely sees it as the West coming in and orchestrating something that most of the Ukrainian people didn't support. And if you don't believe that, just look at this invasion. He genuinely thought they would be greeted as liberators, okay? So sure. I, don't, I don't think he sees the what he sees is the encroachment of the West on Ukraine as some kind of pure expression of uh, democratic uh, aspirations in, in, in Ukraine. So I, now I don't doubt that some of what you're saying is true, but I, I think that tends to get overplayed because I don't think he sees he sees this as uh, as a democracy in action to begin with. Well, that's also common among not just autocrats, but it's common against it's common for any kind of criminal really, which is that there's a rationalization that goes on that says nobody ever plays on the level. And so there's an assumption that the, you know, Europe is sort of looking at this the way I would look at it. And there is no such thing as like a better freer system. It doesn't, I'm sure that does, he, he buy he believes that rationalization, but it is a rationalization. And one of the reasons I think we're in a perilous moment is because if he was a better leader, and maybe if it was 10 years earlier and he hadn't perhaps lost us fastball, so to speak, uh, he would have had advisors who would have told him, you're crazy. Ukrainians hate the idea of being dominated by Russia. They genuinely want to join Europe. This is not the West imposing their values on Ukraine. It's Ukraine asserting that it wants to be part of those values, which I think is the reality. But he doesn't have those advisors to say that. So I think you're right. He probably believes this thing, but it's it doesn't make it it's it's not true. Um oh I think he definitely is in in important ways deluded. Uh and and, and more than we knew. And again, the invasion has kind of shown that. The, the, and like I said, um, one, there's one other factor here which I think led to this. And that is Putin has had success with sometimes what's called gray zone or hybrid warfare. So he has used the combination of cyber 
political warfare, information warfare, and some military, often special operators. And he's taken territories in, or effectively taken territories in Georgia. He's annexed Crimea. He's created a separatist region in the Donbass. He has managed to get, had a run of success in these kinds of wars. And so he probably thought it would have been a cakewalk for those reasons. And he's also had, so there have been consequences, particularly after 2014, but they haven't been crippling economic sanctions. He's been able to survive. And he also hasn't been diplomatically isolated. So as the Obama administration was preparing to sanction sectors of the Russian economy, it was working with Russia on the Iran nuclear deal. It was working with Russia right. you know, on, to try to end the war in, in Syria, which was always a fool's errand. So he has not paid, you know, if somebody who demands respect, recognize Russia as a great power, that, he, that has never been challenged with the, pre, the past wars of aggression. So now he does it again because he thinks, well, why are they gonna, you know, I probed them before, why are they gonna do it again? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't it just be like 2014? We'll live with it. Um, yeah, well, I, I, I agree. He, he basically, I mean, it, it, this had always worked for him in the past. And you would say that, well, if we had hit back harder, that wouldn't have been the takeaway. And that's a whole, a whole conversation. But I, I certainly agree that, uh, you know, it, it had always worked. Even Chechnya, which was a mess and 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 yeah. full of atrocity, in the end, he got through it. And 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 I worry that he may be looking at Ukraine that way. And I think it's it's confused of him to do that. The the well, the, 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 the fallout. How could he look at Ukraine like, that way now? What's that? I mean, how could he look at it now? That way now? Well, I mean, I mean in the sense of you just plow through and destroy the cities. It worked in Chechnya. And, well, and that, that's sure, what I worry but about. I'm saying if he thinks he's not going to pay a price, if he thinks this is going to be like the other wars, that there'll be denunciations and a couple sanctions, but he'll live. Well, the fact that the Germans at least have suspended the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline committed to a revolutionary increase in their defense spending the fact that Macron is building, what, 10 nuclear power plants and you're seeing European leaders finally address their energy dependence on Russia, that is a sea change. I mean, I, I, it, that's a yeah. huge difference. That's true. But here's a, here's a question about how we've responded to this. I, I think he definitely underestimated this, the sanctions blowback, and that's clear to him now. But one question I have is, uh, what's left in our sanctions arsenal, right? I mean, I, I, I think all along, he, more than we understand, has thought, they've already written me off. There's no hope. I, I don't think he thought that 20 years ago. I think 20 years ago, he, he, he seemed to actually want to become part of the club. But I think he's more and more thought uh, that we're more and more dismissive and I think now he thinks, well, what else can they do? They have tried to completely isolate the Russian economy. We have China, so far at least. Um, I, the question is, should we have left more sanctions in our, in our arsenal? Or alternatively, 
maybe be clearer about what sanctions could be removed if he does X, Y, or Z. Maybe it's too early in the conversation for that, but but do you do you not well, worry have, that, yeah, go ahead. So I, first of all, I wanna say, I, I agree with where you're going in a sense, which is that our escalation ladder is entirely economic sanctions. You could add that diplomatic isolation. Okay. And at the same time, we don't want to get in a shooting war. Um, I don't know if, I think you're, you might be right. Like he's in the war now. I think he under, understands for a, for, for a lot of reasons, he cannot retreat. He can't afford to look weak in front of his military and his own rivals inside the Kremlin. So he's, he's really kind of painted himself in a corner. And I don't know that more sanctions are going to affect his calculus. And those sanctions are there to, well, initially the threat of them was to deter him from the invasion. And now they are there to get him to pull back. And I think you are right that they will not affect his calculus. So what, what do they affect at this point? Well, at a certain point, if the war drags on, it will affect his ability to fund the war, presumably, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know enough about how, what kinds of uh, stuff they can, they can do in terms of, you know, you can, you can fund things at a deficit for a long time under some circumstances. I don't know if, uh, whether we've made well, that not when uh, harder. Can, I mean, I guess he could, rate, he could ask China for loans. They're well, the only yeah. people that can give him those loans at this point, so they'll probably paying through the nose. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think that's a pretty long time frame, but- uh, Okay, fair but, enough, but that's a, that's a good point. So the sanctions are not going to stop his calculations in the immediate term right now when we're thinking about the war. So what will affect that? Well, NATO and the United States are arming. They're providing targeting intelligence. I'm assuming that they're, well, we, David Sanger had a very good piece a few days ago about some of the cyber defensive things that the United States is doing. So the U.S. is kind of, NATO and the U.S. are kind of in the war. They're- <laughs> Believe me, Putin agrees with you there. Right. So we're already in this weird situation. The Ukrainians say, if you close the skies and you help us create some sort of no-fly zone or some call it a humanitarian corridor, then we could really repel this invasion. We could win. So far that that's off the table because of the concern about escalation. I'm not, I'm of the view that it shouldn't be off the table. I'm not uh, saying it absolutely has to be done. Wait, wait say again, that wh which part shouldn't be off the table? Uh, <laughs> engaging in some sort of either a no-fly zone or an airlift of some kind. So just as supply siege cities. Um, but, but a no-fly zone is pretty much immediate conflict between the U.S. and Russia, right? I mean, we... Well, it's shooting conflict. <laughs> well, what other kind is there? Well, there's... That's the kind I worry an, about. There, I don't there's know currently you. an economic war. Yeah. We're currently funding, arming, providing right. targeting intelligence, which, I mean, 
could be seen as an act of war. Putin has said that economic sanctions were an act of war. Right, but I mean, it, it, it is a direct shooting war and therefore has a whole new level of likelihood of going regional, uh, which in turn has a whole new level of likelihood, you know, that is to say Russia versus NATO, which in turn brings a whole new level of likelihood of something going wrong and it going nuclear. That's That's the, you know, I mean, you can't do a no-fly zone basically without killing Russians. And, you know, you have right. to, and, and so I, you're I in know. a war. You're in a war with okay, Russia. But, but if I may, yeah, we're already kind of killing Russians, aren't we? We're providing the targeting intelligence. We're providing the weapons that are killing Russians. Yeah, but, but not in a way that is nearly as likely to escalate toward nuclear war. This is a big threshold. Almost uh, well, all so the, the generals about, agree on this. Uh, one I, of the few I'm exceptions is I'm, like, is like Wesley that, Clark. I know that lots of people, lots of generals, lots of senators are against the idea of a no-fly zone for those reasons. What I'm saying or raising this prospect is that we are already in an unknown escalatory ladder. We've already seen the Russians imply they may use chemical weapons. Uh, as a sort of escalation. Do we have a response to that? And we know from Russian military doctrine that they would use tactical nuclear weapons in the battlefield. Now, in the context of Ukraine, that would mean tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. The leader of Ukraine is aware of all of this because it's an open, published on the internet, the Russian military doctrine of using tactical nuclear weapons, he's willing to bear that risk. Now, as for the prospect of a strategic nuclear exchange, I don't think that that's in the cards. And I also think that the Russians would be deterred for the reasons they're always deterred. We have nuclear weapons too. But the so, real so risk of escalation is tactical so nuclear weapons if the United States got involved in a no-fly zone. And you well, think that that itself is not a forbidding prospect? I do think you, it's a horrible prospect. Do you think you prospect. speak for all the Ukrainians who would die? No, no. I'm noting that the elected leader of Ukraine must be aware of that risk as well because he's the one requesting well, maybe a no Maybe he should zone. hold a quick referendum because I'm pretty sure that if you ask Ukraine to vote on whether just in the abstract we should do something that, that appreciably increases the chances of their country getting nuked, they would vote no. Well, again... The elected leader of Ukraine is aware of the Russian military doctrine on tactical nuclear weapons. And the elected nuclear, and he's willing to bear that. And I would imagine that if you were to ask Ukrainians right now, should NATO impose a no-fly zone mm -hmm. as their apartments and maternity wards and hospitals are being bombed, they would say yes. Well, I mean, most Americans say yes because they have no idea what the implications of a no-fly zone okay, are. Okay, fine. It's but the I'm job saying, of national security elites to encourage I, sobriety I'm, to prevail. I'm not arguing that there isn't a risk. What I'm arguing is that that is a risk primarily borne by Ukrainians. And I would imagine many Ukrainians in this moment, if they believed that there was, as I do, a strategic opportunity here, if this is what could, could defeat the invasion, which is what Ukrainians are saying, Mm -hmm. Well, if that's the case, then that risk of escalation is worth it if it means that Russia loses the war. If it means that, they're, that ultimately it stops the bombing 
and the horrible price that's being paid right now. So I agree with if you. If it in the works abstract. out that way, yeah, but but we've agreed that there's a significant risk of 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 kind of the opposite happening. Like rather than save these people, you 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 kill a whole bunch of well, people. Well, is that first of all, there's a risk if the Ukrainians are effective without a no-fly zone. But, but also so Eli, let's say we figured out a non-no-fly zone. Also, way, Eli, but, the idea that a tactical strike would be the end of it, and that would not itself inc radically increase the chances of a much larger nuclear war. With all due respect, that seems to me crazy. Do you have any idea how much political pressure there would be on Biden to use a nuke in exchange? He might do it I don't anyway. Think, I don't think there, if it was a tactical nuke in Ukraine, I don't think there would be pressure to destroy Russian cities with ICBM. Come on, I don't think that's well, the case Well, do we have tactical, maybe one tactical We, we don't nuke? have tactical nukes, actually. Well, what's our lowest yield? I mean, we could, we could find a way to kill a comparable number of people. There would be pressure on Biden to do that. Well, again... The Russian military doctrine is that if they're losing, they would use this in the battlefield. My point is not to say that it isn't a risk. My point is, I think it's already a risk, which is if we want the Ukrainians to succeed, and let's say they succeed without a no-fly zone, and the Russian military is on, you know, is, is up against the wall, mm -hmm. then that would be a conditions under which Putin would use a tactical nuke also. So if you're arguing it's an unacceptable risk under any circumstances, then why not just come out and say the best position is the West should pressure Zelensky to capitulate? Because that's the surest way no, I, to I don't, avoid I don't the think, prospect of a tactical nuclear weapon. I don't think uh, any risk whatsoever of nuclear war is unacceacceptable. A, a 0.001% risk for a sufficient gain might be enough. It's just that you're talking about, by your own account, significantly increasing the risk. But but we I don't, don't know need to. Okay, again, we don't know how significant. I mean, I think our. It's not even that. I'm saying, let's say, okay, let's say they don't do a no-fly zone, but we finally get large quantities of surface-to-air missiles that are capable of shooting down Russian planes, and that Ukrainians achieve a kind of dominance of the skies, the equivalent effect mm -hmm. of a no-fly zone. Mm -hmm. And that in turn, the Russian columns of armor are even more vulnerable than they are now. At that point, Russian military doctrine would also envision using a tactical nuclear weapon. So that's I'm a just long way for meaning it would happen. And even that, first of all, that would not increase the chances of a tactical nuke, I think, by nearly as much as actual American direct involvement. The, no, and, the, and the other thing is, like, doctrine is doctrine is something on paper. He, okay. He's not compelled. The fact that that they envision the possible use of a tactical nuke under these circumstances, you know, we haven't ruled out uh, first use of a nuke. But, you know, it's pretty much impossible to imagine a circumstance where that actually happens, right? Where we are the first to use a nuke. Sure. So, I mean, doctrine, schmoctrine, but, but. Well, it's a little different to say we haven't ruled it out versus to say a doctrine that says these are the circumstances when we would use it. But fair enough. It is a piece of paper. All, you know, war, all best plans are ruined as soon as the first mm -hmm. guns or whatever. I get it. It's a war. Decisions are made. It's not always following some sort of plan like that. I'm just saying that Putin will escalate, even if it isn't a tactical nuke even if it's chemical weapons or something worse, if he really feels he's in danger of losing, 
So again, if you want to avoid worse outcomes and more spiraling escalation, then your position should be, we have to pressure Zelensky to capitulate. But I don't think that's your position. It's certainly not my no, position. I, I just don't buy that it's binary for reasons I've, I've tried to spell out. I, I don't see it as, as binary. But uh, but let me, I, I think we want to, I'm sure you would like to talk about your commentary piece, right? Sure. We should, so we should not, um, we should not let you get mired down in what was sure to be a losing argument with me. <laughs> You know, your your own personal Afghanistan. We don't want that. Um, uh, I, I just. But what is, but what is the, um, uh, tell us about, because I think, uh, well, let me just say uh, one thing, uh, flesh out an illusion I made earlier, which I think will be a good segue to your commentary piece, maybe. I had said we both uh, condemn in unqualified terms the invasion of Ukraine I think as for why we both find it particularly egregious, you might emphasize to some extent the fact that they are trying to invade and crush a democracy. I don't really attach any weight to that. They are just invading a sovereign country, which is a violation of international law, period. Should be right. unacceptable. And and I think there's a slightly different emphasis there, and maybe that's a decent segue to where you think our foreign policy should be headed because you 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 do emphasize in a way that I don't, uh, you know, a kind of fundamental division between autocracies and authoritarian countries on the one hand and liberal democracies on the other. Well, right? I, I wrote this about Russia and China. So they are autocracies. And my view is that 30 years of, for lack of a better word, sort of like neoliberal thinking and policy that over time, if we entice China and Russia into the rules-based international system, they were in the WTO, Interpol, et cetera, that these institutions would constrain Russia and China in the way that they supposed to constrain liberal democracies. And that if we traded with Russia and China, it would over time create a middle class that would eventually demand the same kinds of rights that we would want for ourselves. And we would find tamer, more transparent and freer China and Russia and that would reduce conflict. That has failed. Uh, I used to believe it, and I don't think you can believe this anymore. And you consider the Ukraine war kind of uh, the, uh, the I think it's been example. failing for a while. But you, you consider this this an example. The, the war, well, the, the, these institutions and so on were supposed to... Yeah, in yeah. the sense that even the 2014 war, Putin was careful to give himself a fig leaf under international law. So he didn't acknowledge there were Russian soldiers for months in Ukraine, if you remember. In Crimea? In Crimea. Or, or, Don, or the Donbass, I guess. Right. There was a referendum, although hardly legitimate, in Crimea 
where they requested to join Russia, and then Russia voted to bring them in. In Georgia, his uh, military intelligence, the GRU, effectively baited the government in Tbilisi into striking first at separatists who were doing these cross-border attacks. So he could claim they were coming to the aid of you know, people who were being attacked. This is, and, and then other bad things he's done, like assassinating his political opponents, all plausible deniability and things like that. This, he's not bothering to hide it. It's an invasion. His, again, that speech that he gave was crazy. Uh, he accused a country that elected a Jewish president of being a Nazi regime. Um, he's saying, come and stop me, but you can't. And that has implications. Um, and in my view, those implications should be that either Russia is demoted inside of the United Nations, if that's possible. The Ukrainians have some interesting ideas about whether Russia should be the inheritor of the Soviet Union's veto and permanent seat of the Security Council. Again, maybe it's worth trying. But if not, I think the United States and its allies should construct a smaller alternative to the UN that excludes Russia and excludes Russia from all of these other institutions. And over time, if China continues to act the way it's acting, excluding China. And I think that this would be, even though I know it's a big step, but in the end, this is the way to get a better international community because you would be able to set, set sort of hold up standards for membership. And, and, and also, wait, what would the standards be? Like this Belarus. Be like, so Sorry. this would not initially be a league of democracies if you envision China possibly being a member? Uh, I, I think it gets, it's not so much a league of democracies. I'm less interested in that. I think it's important for democracies to work together. It, at this point, I think it's about excluding Russia, but also making it known that if China was to invade Taiwan, frankly, what lots of things that China has done, I mean, what it, what it did in Hong Kong is an example, then those would be grounds for its sort of disqualification or a, uh, a downgrading of its are you sure? Citizenship. Are you sure China would want to join in the first place? Probably not, but that's okay with okay, me. Okay, so we don't really need to talk about criteria no, I, for I'm not, expulsion. I'm not trying to work with China. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But then there's a lot of other elements in this essay. That's one part of it. Another part of it is economic separation, which is not total, but there should be at least strategic considerations. So energy independence, obviously, so that Europe and the West is not relying on Russian energy, but also rare earths, uh, minerals, and metals that are needed for so much, everything from smartphones to uh, drone technology. We need to have supply chains that are independent of China so they can't use that as a choke point in case of conflict. There, I think, does need to be an increase in defense spending with an eye towards deterrence, but not uh, towards an aggressive war with these countries, obviously, or starting a war. Um, and then I, as an old neocon, uh, I 
think there should be an element of kind of international solidarity. So we should take advantage of a dynamic that we saw in the 20th century, which is that the most talented genius people living in autocratic states want to live in the West. So we should welcome their artists and their dissidents. And you think of this as a as an effective way to kind of have a brain drain. So instead of well, don't you having, worry about the implications of that? And I mean, you you ultimately hope these autocracies will cease to be autocracies, right, yes. and become thriving liberal democracies. And I assume you would include market economies. And we wouldn't we like them to have a, a bunch of talented, well educated people at that point. Well, and and, not, and, to, and people who would agitate in the meanwhile. You know, I, I, I don't want think- China to have I don't I don't want China to have to be a, like a near peer competitor when it comes to military technology. I would like America to have and Europe to have a massive technological advantage. But, but, but look at the exodus of uh, kind of liberal minded talent from Russia that's happening right now as a result of the war and the sanctions yeah. and everything. Well, Great. don't you think Putin is Give at some them visas, level- let them stay, make them citizens. Wonderful. Fine, but don't you think Putin is at some level happy about that? Those are the people who could cause him trouble. Well, he may be happy about that, but he's managed to rig his own system in such a way that he's neutralized this threat for now. Mm-hmm. And uh, my part of the other part of this is that Russian Americans, Chinese Americans who fleeing those their their old tyrannies become wonderful windows and portals into the old world as well. And they can help become this sort of lifeline to those countries. But I mean, the idea that there would be a brain drain is first of all, not, it's not like we're kidnapping their scientists and bringing them here and giving them better lives. They're coming here because this is where they want to live. But what we have right now is the children of Chinese elites who study at MIT go back to China and use all of that technology to improve their economy and their military and their cyber warfare capabilities. I would like those people to stay here. I would like to have a kind of a big open door in that respect. And then there are other things I think we should be able to do. We should have a very aggressive program that attacks the kind of inner, the version of the notion of the internet has territorial boundaries. So when you see like dot, uh, UKR or something, we should have, uh, similar to what Elon Musk's uh, Earthlink is doing, we should be able to position satellites at technology so that we can provide a free internet alternative to citizens in these countries, which I think is technologically feasible and is in our interest. And I do not call for a total end of diplomatic relations. So there should be uh, nuclear arms control diplomacy. There should be hotlines between our militaries on nuclear matters. Uh, I also think there should be emb- our embassies should be open in Moscow and Beijing to the extent feasible, as long as our diplomats are not harassed and attacked, so that they can sort of monitor what's going on there among the people as well. I mean, that's an advantage to us. Um, so it's it's not an it's not complete isolation. Is and we should always have a disengagement of a significant at a significant level. It is a kind of disengagement in the sense that I don't think we should try to work with China or Russia to solve what 
which sometimes called you know problems of the global commons. I think we should assume that these countries are kind of eroding uh, the systems that we 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 want in place. And there's a lot of examples of that. If you just look at Interpol, that Chinese affected a regime change a few years ago. They disappeared the Chinese national who was the president of Interpol. And then a few years later, he emerged and stood a, stood on a show trial for alleged corruption. So my view is it would be nice if everybody played by the rules of institutions like Interpol, but they don't. So let's have an Interpol that only has members that are going to use it for its purpose and not issue red notices for like political dissidents. So it's an idea of shrinking some of these global institutions in order to save them. And ultimately to kind of create the standards by one day, China, Russia, other countries that wouldn't make the cut would know the standards in which they could join. Very similar to how EU expansion worked after the end of the Cold War, where that you couldn't just get into the EU. You had to persuade the EU that you had successive elections, that you weren't persecuting minorities, uh, things like that. That's how that's the approach that we should take. Yeah, but see, my view, I mean, we don't have time for a big argument about this, is that uh, the, what you call the problems of the commons are exactly the things we cannot afford to ignore for another couple of decades of Cold War. Uh, it's not just nuclear arms. It's like arms in space. The whole infrastructure in space is becoming so much uh, more critical and the prospects of it being disrupted so much more alarming and, and with so much more potential for leading to a wider war. Biological weapons, if we haven't learned anything from the pandemic, I would think it's that, hey, wait a second, uh, do we know what's going on in labs around the world? Should we at least try to get a clear idea. I just think there are, and then of course there are things like climate oh, change, no, what, which are what? more commonly discussed. I just think there are a ton of non-zero sum problems that uh, that collectively are an existential risk for the planet. And we cannot afford to go decades without any uh, ser serious cooperation among the world's nations to uh, to handle them. Okay, so let's, let's go back to COVID. Okay. China's in the World Health Organization. What do they do when they had information that it was an airborne disease and highly contagious? They lied to the World Health Organization. They said that wasn't the case. They arrested the nurses and journalists who were trying to get the word out <clears throat> that this was happening in China and that the world had to prepare, denying that there was any kind of problem. And then when the World Health Organization was trying to investigate the origins of the virus, not just as political blame, but to find out how it mutated and how that would help them develop ways to stop the spread. The Chinese shut down the investigation, basically, by denying any kind of cooperation. Uh, I'm not saying this because I believe that COVID is a bioweapon that China created to destroy the world. That's a conspiracy theory, and there's no real evidence that that's exactly what happened. But the idea that the Chinese... Uh, in the World Health Organization somehow helped us handle COVID, that's just not true. The World Health Organization failed because China covered this up. And 
it was deadly serious. And they tried to cover it up. Yeah, well, and I, so I just that's an that- example of where I would, in an ideal world, I would like to cooperate on all these problems, but I think mm-hmm. that the track record is that it doesn't really work. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say WHO, all, all these institutions of of international governance are young, are nascent. Uh, they don't work that well right now. One of the problems with them is that they are so dependent on big donors sometimes that the donors have uh, special clout. We have abused that sometimes. America has. China abused it in this case. I'm personally not giving up because I don't see an alternative to, to having stronger global governance. Um, but uh, but it's certainly true that it doesn't work all that well right now. Well, I uh, think the re- one reason it doesn't work is because you have a lot of nations who pretty much agree by the rules of the road. And I'm not, I don't want to get into an argument about the Iraq war or something like that. And then you have countries that are seeking to undermine those rules. Yeah. And that's the pattern with Russia and China. And so that if this yeah. forces Chinese leadership to change course by doing this exclusion of Russia stuff. Yeah. Wonderful. I'm not, I'm not asking for the moon. And they, they, uh-huh. if they behave as better global citizens, that's great. I, I just don't I, think that's going to happen. I emphatically disagree that we are great at complying with the rules and they are terrible. Of course, if you keep excluding examples like the Iraq war, yeah, your argument gets a lot easier to make, but there are a lot of those. And and I, again, we don't have time for this, but I just think this is the, it's the, it's the most pernicious fiction possibly circulating in the American foreign policy establishment that we uh, abide by the rules of the road. And I'm talking about the external behavior, you know, behavior among nations. I don't deny that there are a lot of human rights situations in the world that are that are uh, much worse than than anything going on in our borders. But if you're talking about external behavior, compliance with international law, uh, maybe we should schedule a whole nother debate. I just think it is so false that we are the guardians of the rule-based order. So uh, who is? And, and, and by the way, you know, Putin, so who is? To, who's who's going to be the guardians of that? I don't know, but if we want to be it, we have to quit breaking the rules. Okay, that's let me know when you're ready for that because I am, and I've been advocating so it for decades. I my view is not that America always follows the rules, but for the most part, there is a not even. I don't. I'm, I'm going to let me backtrack. There's a categorical difference between the U.S. approach to some of these things, to this, to the rules-based order, versus China or Russia. What country has China invaded? Oh, come on. China is conducting a cultural genocide against the Uyghur Eli, population. I just said I'm distinguishing between rules about the external behavior of nations. Obviously, that's a big problem, what you just described, what they're doing. Or what but, they did but, in Hong but, Kong. But if you're going to contend that the U.S. does a significantly better job of abiding by the rules of, of the road, well, not and it has more than once invaded another country, and China hasn't, you got to okay. deal with that. Explain I, that. But America has a special role in that it, it's sort of, especially after the Cold War, became the enforcer of the international system. And that is a, that's my theory of the Iraq war case, which I know we disagree with. But in that way, I think it's entirely different than Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 
Is the war well, in Iraq was not a war of conquest. There are a lot the war of differences. Is a war of there are a lot of differences, but I assure you, this is actually on Putin's mind. You know the speech he gave in in two, 2007 at the Munich Security Conference. Yes. He said, citing Iraq and plausibly Kosovo, the U.S. is violating international rampantly. If this continues, and, and he he made a big deal about NATO expansion, and he said, you know. And I think we should have understood then that, you know, uh, this does seem to be kind of a hot button issue. At that point, by the way, he had never, he had been in power for seven years. He had never invaded a country. It was after George W. Bush replied, in effect, to that speech by saying, we're going to let Ukraine into NATO and Georgia into NATO. It was after that, that he started screwing around Georgia and so on. I, I'm, you know... Uh, I, I'll I'll say nothing more because because we can't talk forever. I'll just I'll just give you. Uh, oh, okay, can I can I just respond to that? Yeah, I'm giving you the last word. Okay, <laughs> and then I'm going to try to summon the restraint to not reply. I'm going to. Well, I have tape. Feel, I'm going to take. Feel, Go ahead. Feel free. Um, he hasn't attacked Lithuania. He hasn't attacked Poland. So maybe the lesson was that instead of having the U.S. kind of support the membership action plans for Georgia and Ukraine, and then knowing that the French and the Germans wouldn't go along with it, that we should have really let them into NATO because it appears that NATO has deterred Russia, as opposed to what we ended up doing, which is to not let them in and to sort of delay it, kick it down the road, and that was a temptation for Russia to assert, or rather Putin to assert, uh, control over his so-called near abroad. It takes such self-restraint for me not to quote Bill Bur the memo Bill Burns sent to the Bush administration in 2008 to Condi Rice. Oh, but I guess I'll do it. So hard. Um. Uh, but we, we do have to bring this to a close. So so I kind of, mainly kind of gave you the last word as promised, more or less. All right. So Eli, this is always great. You know, Thank you so much. If everyone was like us and they could respectfully exchange uh, differences of opinion. Yes, also one last thing we were, we, a note of agreement for us. Yeah, invasion Don't bad. Don't invade countries. Tchaikovsky. Yeah. Don't... The need to ban like RT or call people who disagree with you Russian agents or anything like that, as I've tweeted a few times, both helps and right. emulates Vladimir Putin. And you would go so far as to include Tucker Carlson in that. Don't call him a Russian agent. I don't think that he is a Russian agent. I think he's dead wrong on uh. this. He's been totally wrong on this. I, I but it reminds me of the John Birch Society um, in the Cold War. These were people who didn't have anything serious to say about the international struggle with communism, which was a serious thing, and instead used this sort of the geopolitical struggle as a way to go after their domestic opponents and distract people and basically drum up nativism and paranoia. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it seems that playing the role of 
the unhinged, like McCarthyites um, this time around are, um, I, you know, I, the I, resistance Democrats I, and I, the, yeah. some of these people in tech companies who think that Americans are too stupid to, to see through the pathetic Russian propaganda that we're getting, have a little confidence. None of the Russian propaganda in Europe, none of their bribery of political parties meant anything three weeks ago uh, when the mask slipped, Putin invaded Ukraine and Europe acted. They're not 10 feet tall and this has a huge effect at home uh, that are making us more illiberal. I think we would agree with that. I 100% agree on the McCarthyism thing. And, you know, like when Jen Psaki said about whoever she said it about, you know, the Biden spokesperson, they're reciting Putin talking points. I just completely hate the thing. I I, I mean, I would go further and say, I I just wish we could expunge the term apologist from vocabulary, you know, even, even, you know, you're a Putin apologist, you're this, you're that. I mean, these things subtly erode the values that supposedly... Uh, you know, we're uh, we're fighting for when we support democracies, and uh, and I would I would go one further. Is the argument of what Russian propaganda is trying to accomplish in the domestic sense is to divide us. That's the point. It's to try to get us at our throats. Mm-hmm. Okay, how does a campaign to keep calling your political opponents? disloyal Americans who are agents of a hostile foreign power not aiding Russian propaganda, right? Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's disturbing. And, and among the unfortunate consequences of the Trump years yeah. was, as you said, to make a lot of uh, resistance Democrats more inclined to do this kind of thing and accuse various people of being Russian stooges in ways that, you know, wind up just discouraging the free exchange of ideas. Tail gunner so, Hillary. <laughs> tail gunner Hillary. Some people may not get that illusion. They used to, they, they called Joe McCarthy tail gunner Joe. By the way, I heard a revisionist account according to which he actually was a tail gunner, as he claimed during the war. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we don't have time for that. Well, thank you, Eli. People should thank go so to much. commentary and, and subscribe just in case the editors there uh, ever exercise such bad judgment as to, again, put your stuff behind a paywall, which I discourage. It's too good. It's too good to be to be put behind a paywall, but they may. So people should subscribe. And uh, and thanks for doing this again. And we'll, we'll check Thank in you. down the road. Okay. okay. Thanks, Bob. Thank you.